The reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 6 through 25. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety." And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Have a a human king is to replace God, is to reject God, is to replace him, and and it's a a bad thing. And and in truth, this is what happens. Um, The the people of Israel um, are attempting to find an identity apart from God, an identity like that of the cultures around them. And this is a negative thing. But there's this, this attitude there that, that, that having a human king is, is completely, uh, completely wrong. Um, uh, even though if we go back in, in Deuteronomy, we actually find the places in Deuteronomy and even in Genesis, we'll, we'll see a spot today where um, the, the, the kingship is talked about and that it, it is going to become a part of, of their reality. Now, on the other side, there is this other attitude, uh, this attitude that um, uh, having a king is a good thing, that God could use a human king to save his people. And so there's these two different sort of attitudes that we see, and it goes back and forth in these four chapters in 1 Samuel. And we understand that 1 Samuel was edited by somebody, who, somebody who, who took different um, uh, stories and compiled them together, and, and he's okay with the fact that they're not exactly harmonizing with one another. And, and, and through these, these stories or through these attitudes regarding the monarchy, we actually see some, some questions that we could ask of, of the text, and essentially questions that we could ask of God. On the one hand, is God a God of wrath? Or is he a God of love? Uh, Is he a God of of judgment? Or is he a God of of mercy? Does God judge sinners and condemn sinners? Or does God save sinners? And, And the text doesn't answer that. Instead, when we pull back and we see all of Scripture together as one unified story, what we discover is that in Jesus, the answer to all these questions is yes. 
In Jesus, we have this God-man king who comes to us and because he's God, he's able to live this perfectly sinless life. No, no human being has ever been able to be so faithful to God and so sinless as Jesus was. And yet, as a human being, he's able to, to pour out his blood. He's able to die in our place. And so at the cross, Jesus stands in the gap. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God for us. He absorbs the judgment of God that we are due, and yet at that place he also gives the mercy of God and displays the love of God, that that the justice and mercy of God all meet up in the cross. And so the question is, does God judge sinners? Yes, because he who knew no sin became sin, and he was judged. But does God save sinners? Yes, in Jesus we find that. And so it is when we, we look at, at, at the Bible as, as not just a, a 66 individual stories, when we begin to look at the Bible and see it as one big story, one big story, and we read the Bible from front to back, and, and along the way we discover who God is and what God's, God's done, but then when we get to Jesus, we read it from back to, to, to front, and, and we can see Jesus throughout the text, and we see the larger picture of God, God's redeeming story in all of it. So we, we, we discover that when we do this, we, we see who God is, we see what he's done, and, and, and in particular, uh, God's faithfulness towards us. God's faithfulness towards us. You know, um, redemptive history really is this cycle of God being faithful to us and we being uh, unfaithful to him in response. Uh, and this is what Samuel hits on. When we, when we look at 1 Samuel 12 and what was just read there, um, this is what Samuel talks about. He talks about how uh, the, the, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and they cried out to God, and God in his faithfulness delivered them. And yet immediately they turn away from him. Uh, and so uh, when, when they turn away from them, God allows them to, to, to be abused and to be you know, uh, controlled by outside powers until once again they cry out to God for help, and God in his faithfulness returns and he saves them. And so uh, Samuel talks about uh, Jeroboam, or, or who we call Gideon, uh, from the book of, of Judges. He talks about Barak, he talks about uh, Jephthah, and he finally he, he concludes with talking about himself. He's the last judge over Israel. And we're going to see uh, that this, this, this statement today, or this uh, what we just read, in, in chapter 12. This is his farewell address. Samuel is going to fade into the background and Saul is going to, to sort of fade in and, and, and take the foreground of, of the story. And in this farewell address, he talks about God's faithfulness. And, and I want to begin where, uh, almost at the conclusion, chapter 12, verse 24, Samuel says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Why? For consider what great things he has done for you. What great things he has done for you. When we look at the past, when we look at redemptive history, what we see is over and over and over again the faithfulness of God towards us. Will you consider the great things that God has done for you? So this morning we see that one of the great things that God does for his people is actually raises up this guy, Saul, and gives him to be king over his people, Israel, in spite of the fact that he will fail. Um, this is the sixth week that, that we've been in for Samuel. And, uh, and if you've been you know, along for the ride, uh, you'd know that every single week uh, we, we talk about the climax of this story. And the climax of the story is found at the end of, of the book of Samuel where we see this guy, Saul, uh, and he is dead on top of a hill after uh, this violent, violent, bloody death. Uh, there he is. He's been mortally wounded in combat. He falls on his own sword, and there this king is, and he's lying there dead. 
a sword sticking out of him. And, and the question that we look at is like, is this really the king that we want? Obviously, we need better. Um, but some of you might, might be wondering, like, why have we been talking about this the whole way through? Like, from the very beginning, why are we talking about, about that aspect? Like, aren't, aren't, aren't we kind of giving away uh, the end from the beginning? And the truth is, um, is that you, well, I mean, the book's 3,000 years old. You've had time to read it. Um, but, but the other thing is, is that this is actually not the end. Uh, first and second Samuel, actually one book. They're one book, and, and the story of, of Saul's death on, on the, the, this hilltop, um, this isn't the, it's the climax, but it's not the end of the story. But you could look at this, this death, and you, could, and you could, in your mind's eye, picture this man lying dead on, on top of this hill, and, and you could ask the question, is this the ending that God wanted for Saul? Like, is this what God wanted? We understand, uh, because of Scripture, that God is he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all things. He sees the beginning and he sees the end. He, he saw uh, Saul um, uh, anointed with oil and made a king, but he also saw him die. Like, he's, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He wasn't surprised by these events. And, and additionally, what the Bible teaches us is that God is sovereign. Not only does he know everything, but he's working everything out. He's involved in it. He's making it happen. So he's sovereign over all of this that's, that, that's happening there. But the Bible also teaches us something else. It teaches us that we're responsible. We're responsible for our attitudes and our beliefs and our choices and the things that come out of our mouths. We're responsible. And so we live in this tension between God's sovereignty over all things and our responsibility. And the truth of the matter is, is God did not make Saul reject him. He didn't make Saul reject him. But, but back to the question, is this what God wanted? I can't answer that, to be honest with you. I have to recognize that I'm a, I'm, I'm a created being. And I'm trying to understand a creator. And not only can I not wrap my physical arms around him, I can't, I can't wrap my, my mind around him. And I can't, I can't know this question. But, but there's a, I think there's a better question that we can know. And the question is this, is did God love Saul? Did God love Saul? And the answer is yes. Um, in the coming weeks, we're going to see God make this, this statement about regretting that he made Saul king. Now, how can an omniscient, sovereign God regret? And the truth is, is that behind this word is it's not a mistake or a failure on God's part. It is God allowing us to see grief, to see emotion. Because the truth is, is you can't hurt someone who doesn't love you. Like, love opens itself up to the possibility of grief. God loved Saul. So we'll, we'll tackle that when we get to it a little bit more. But this morning, in the passage that we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to see God's love for Saul, and he's going to demonstrate that in two ways. The first is that he's going to redeem Saul's past. He's going to redeem his family of origin. Uh, the second thing that we're going to see is we're going to see that, that uh, he affirms his presence with Saul over and over again. Over and over again, he, 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 he tells Saul that he's, he's with them and he shows them in, in real ways. Okay, so um, before we get there, uh, before we can go forward through the story, we actually have to go back. 
And, uh, and so uh, we're gonna go back to Genesis. You know, uh, uh, as we go through this series, we're dealing with large uh, portions of, of scripture. And so rather than going through them line by line and, and uh, word by word, uh, I'm just gonna tell the, these stories to you. I'm gonna summarize these stories for you. But I'm gonna trust you that you have your Bible open, that, that, that you're actually you know, following along, that you're going to engage in this. Like, you should not take my word for what the Bible says, right? Remember the, the indictment of, of atheist.org last week? The indictment is that Christians don't read their Bibles. Let's not make that true, right? So follow along me with, with your, in your text. Um, we'll, eventually we'll get there, we'll be in, in 1 Samuel 10 through, through 12, uh, but we're gonna begin in Genesis. What we discover in, in Genesis is that um, this, this faithfulness that we talk about, that God is over and over, he's faithful towards us, and yet we are faithless towards him. And, and, and we need to see that in, in order for human, humanity to, to change, in order for us to become faithful to God like he is faithful to us, the human heart has to change. And so to set about this, 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 this change of course for the human heart, it begins with the creation of one family through a guy named Abraham. And it's going to be through this one family that it makes this promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed eventually. But it's through this one family. It begins with Abraham, who has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob. And Jacob, um, he gets married. And he marries the wrong girl at first. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, he's actually deceived by his father-in-law. He thinks he's marrying uh, Rachel, the love of his life. Um, but in fact, he wakes up the, the morning after the, the wedding and finds that he hasn't married Rachel. He's married Leah, her older sister. And so uh, through m- uh, more time, he actually gets to marry uh, Rachel. But you can see there's, there's these two sisters that are married to the same man, and here's the beginning of a dysfunctional family. All right, a very dysfunctional family. In fact, these two sisters, they begin to compete with who can provide sons for Jacob. Um, and, and the competition goes so far that they actually take their handmaids, their slave girls, Bilhah and Zilpah, and they give them to Jacob to have kids through them. This is messed up. So, so Jacob, through these, these four women, has 12 sons. And the 12th son is named Benjamin. And it's, it's Rachel, it's, it's Jacob's, the love of his life, the one that he wanted, it's Rachel, the woman he loves, who gives birth to Benjamin, but she dies in childbirth. And so Jacob um, creates this monument. There's, there's this tomb for Rachel that becomes this big landmark, and it becomes a monument to the woman he loved the woman who gave birth to Benjamin. And Benjamin becomes his, 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 his beautiful boy. So fast forward a little bit, and uh, this, this family of about 70 people, uh, Jacob and his 12 sons and their wives, they go into Egypt because of the famine, and over the course of about 400 years, this family of 70 grows into several million, and, uh, and, and these 12 sons become 12 tribes of Israel, right? Now before that happens, Jacob's on his deathbed, and Jacob calls his 12 sons to him because he's going to have this prophetic uh, word picture for them about what their family is going to be like and what their family is going to become, all right? And so Benjamin comes in, his, his, his baby boy, and he has this to say, Gibeah, the Benjamin of Gibeah, and demand that the man give them the stranger visiting. They surround this house with vile, horrible intent, and I'll just stop and leave it there, okay? So instead of going out or instead of giving the man to them, the concubine is given to them, okay? This enrages the tribes of Israel, and they all come out against Benjamin, and they meet at a place called Mizpah, 
And there at Mizpah, all of these leaders swear a vow that they will not give any of their daughters to a Benjaminite. They will never allow one of their daughters to marry into the Benjaminite tribe. Then they march against Gibeah. The, the people of Gibeah, they've called for help from their Benjaminite brothers, and civil war begins. Uh, thousands, thousands of Israelites and Benjaminites die. In fact, uh, at one point, the, the, the Israelites gain control over, uh, over the Benjaminites. They go into the town of Gibeah. They slaughter nearly everybody. They then begin to go to every other Benjaminite town and slaughter nearly everybody. So that by the, the, fine that, the, the time that dust settles, there's only a few hundred men left to the tribe of Benjamin. There's only a few hundred men left. And so they gather again at, uh, at Bethel, and they begin to mourn. They begin to lament the fact that uh, through the, these series of events, there's a tribe of Israel that has almost been made extinct because of civil war. They lament this. But they're also lamenting the fact that they've, they've made a vow that they can't give their daughters to these men to perpetuate this tribe. And so somebody asks the question, well, is there anybody that didn't go with us? Is there anybody who didn't march uh, on Gibeah? Is there anybody who didn't uh, make this vow? And there's a town called Jabesh Gilead. And the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead didn't join the fight and they didn't make the vow. So they march on Jabesh Gilead. And they kill nearly everybody, except for the virgin daughters of Jabesh Gilead, which then they give to the Benjaminites. The book of Judges ends with, in those days there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And what we need to understand is that there is nobody, in Judges 19 through 21, there is nobody who did what was right. There is nobody who did what was gone ordering. There was nobody. Like, this is vile. This is as bad as it can get. Like, you need to understand something. If, if you have this notion that humanity is good, that humanity just needs to develop, like we just need more technology, we just need more, more advancements, we just, need, you know, we just need to get smarter. You need to understand that that's not going to address the real problem of humanity, and that's the human heart, and the human heart is on full display in Judges 19 through 21. This is as bad as it gets, and this is the real deal of what humanity is like. Nobody does, does the right thing here. It's a horrible, horrible atrocity. This is Saul's family. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. This is his family of origin. And so we're going to pick up where we last, uh, left off last week. Uh, 1 Samuel 9, uh, Samuel and, and Saul have met. Uh, Samuel knows that he's going to anoint Saul as king, and uh, he says to him, you're the whom, uh, who all of Israel desires. You're the one that, that, that all of the people desire. And, and, and Saul's response to that is, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Now, if you don't know the background, you would say, uh, from the beginning of, of chapter 9, he's, he's rich, he's tall, he's handsome, maybe he's proud, and so this is some sort of false modesty. It's not. Like, he literally means he is from the least of, of all the tribes. He is from a tribe who has nearly been obliter obliterated by civil war. It is the smallest of all tribes. I mean, in his nation's history, his nation went to civil war and 12 or 11 tribes went to war against one tribe, and he's of that one tribe. He's a Benjaminite. 
And so uh, Samuel, he, uh, he anoints him prince over Israel. This is an unofficial installation. He's going to be made king a little bit later. Um, and, uh, and he's sent home. But he's sent home, uh, and he's supposed to stop at three places before he gets there. Samuel, Samuel is, is directing him to three places on, on his way home. And the purpose of this little trip is, one, God is going to demonstrate his love for him and that he's going to redeem his past. And two, God's going to demonstrate his love for him and that he's going to show him his presence over and over again. So the first stop along the way that Samuel tells him about, chapter 10, verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So he goes to Rachel's tomb. He goes to the origin of Benjamin. He goes to, to the place where you know, uh, Benjamin's mom uh, dies in childbirth and is buried at this place, at this, this, this monument. He goes back to the origin of his family. And it's there that he is reminding that his father, his earthly father, has concerns for him. That he is, he is loved like Benjamin was loved by his father Jacob. So that's the first stop along the way. But he continues, verses 3 and 4, it says, Then you should go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. So uh, he, he goes to, to a place called Bethel. That's also a significant place for his family, uh, if you go back to Genesis. But uh, he, he goes to Bethel, and he, there he meets priests. Priests are going up this hilltop to offer sacrifices to God, and one of those sacrifices is bread. Um, in, the, in the tabernacle, it was known as show bread. It was, it was known as the bread of the presence of God. It symbolized the very presence of God. Uh, later on, David would eat this bread. He would go into a tabernacle and eat this bread. Later on, Jesus would take bread and break it and pass it to his disciples, and, and he would say, this is my body given for you. This is a picture of God's presence with Saul. God is saying to Saul, I am with you. So the journey continues. Uh, he goes uh, to, the, to the third stop, a place called Gibeath Elonim. Um, that's where he's going to encounter a group of prophets coming down a hill this time. And these prophets are singing and dancing and they're, they're prophesying. Uh, for, for better understanding what they're doing, um, God is just communicating to him, to them. But, but it is a, um, uh, an obvious sign that the, the Spirit of God is, is on them um, proclaiming loudly the, the, the truths of who God is. Okay, so um, he, he, we see that uh, Samuel says to him uh, that you're gonna join them, uh, that the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit coming up, up, upon somebody and them being able to boldly proclaim God. Um, but this doesn't last long. It's a temporary thing. It'll happen uh, again, uh, and we'll see that, but it's not a permanent situation for Saul that the Spirit of God will rest on him. In fact, it's not a permanent situation for anybody until uh, the day of Pentecost. When Jesus has done away once and for all with our unfaithfulness and given us a heart that can coexist with the Spirit of God, at the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes down on the church, and there's this visible sign of this. But it's a permanent situation for us who are in Jesus Christ. It's not for Saul. It goes away. But it's validation by God that he is with him. He's for him. He's not against him. 
And so he continues on and he arrives at home. Do you know where home is for Saul? It's Gibeah. The town where, where the Levite stranger stayed that was surrounded by the men of Benjamin with vile, cruel intent towards him. Where the murder takes place, where it all begins, Gibeah is where Saul is from. It's not just that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. His hometown is Gibeah. He's of that clan. He's of that people. This is his family of origin. Where one of the most disgusting, deplorable acts that has ever taken place in Scripture, Judges 19 through 20, all of this begins. This is Saul's family. This is his family of origin. This is where he comes from. So, uh, the, the scene sort of skips ahead, uh, and what we see is that uh, Samuel is going to call everybody out to a place called Mizpah, where he's going to anoint Samuel as, or Saul as king. This place called Mizpah. And so, um, through, the, through using lots, um, it's determined that uh, the next king is going to come from the tribe of Benjamin. And then the, the, the clan is going to be the clan of Saul. And then the family is going to be the family of Saul. Until finally, it is Saul who is chosen by lot to be the king of Israel. And they can't find him. And they inquire of God, where is Saul? And he's hiding in the baggage. And so they bring him out. And you could tell, like, he's, he's still not sure. He's, he's scared. He, he, he doesn't know what this means. Um, but even though God is, is affirming this over and over again, he still is uh, afraid, first and foremost, of, of man. And we'll see that in the future. But he's anointed king of Israel. And uh, the whole congregation says, long live the king, except for one group of people. And one group of people decide that they don't want him to be their king. You may have seen those, those bumper stickers, right? He's not my president. Well, that's what these guys were saying. Not my king. They refused to bow down to him. Refused to, to, to allow him to be their king. So we'll put that aside for a moment. And I want you to understand this place called Mizpah. Do you remember from what we just talked about? Mizpah was the place where the leaders of Israel gathered together and they swore an oath that they would not give their daughters away to a man of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? All right. In biblical language, when it comes to the relationship between a king and his people, in biblical language, he is likened to a husband of his bride. Uh, we see that with God calling himself a husband to Israel. We see that with David and his uh, anointing and, and inauguration to the throne, that the people say to him, we are your flesh and, your, and bone. It goes back to Genesis, Adam looking at, at Eve we see Paul talking about this in Ephesians, that, that Christ is the, the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Like there's this language, this relationship of, of king to, to people as husband to bride, okay? Ad Mizpah, where the leaders of Israel said, we're not gonna give our daughters to be married to a Benjaminite. A Benjaminite is made king and a husband to all of Israel. God is undoing. Judges 19 through 21. God is redeeming Judges 19 through 21. So he goes home. Apparently, you know, there's no, there's no capital yet. There's lots of things that hasn't been figured out yet. He goes back to work on the farm. Meanwhile, the Ammonites, another group of people, they surround a city called Jabesh Gilead, and they, they attack it. 
And people from Jabesh Gilead send messengers throughout Israel asking for help. Who will come and help us? And a messenger comes to Saul, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord comes on Saul again, and he has this boldness and this courage. And he takes this, these oxen that he's been plowing with, and he slices them up into 12 pieces, and he sends them throughout the tribes of Israel with this message. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Once again, the people of Israel are united to go into combat together. But this time, it's not civil war. And so they march on Jabesh Gilead. They liberate the town. Jabesh Gilead was the place that didn't send warriors the first time. Jabesh Gilead was the place where they, they took the virgin daughters to give the Benjaminites. You see all these things, these things coming undone? And so, after the, 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 the battle's over, uh, people are like, hey, what about that group of people that didn't want Saul as king? Let's find them and kill them. And Saul says no. Verse 13, he says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And vengeance stops. You see, you look at most, one of the most horrific, vile acts in all of human history, all redemptive history, Judges 19 through 21, and it surrounds this, this, this family of Benjamin, and it's from this, this family of Benjamin that, that God's gonna set up a king, but he's also gonna redeem, and he's gonna restore, and he's gonna make the worst, most vile thing that has ever happened better. And God demonstrates his love to Saul in redeeming his past. But he demonstrates his love to Saul, and that over and over again, he's affirmed that he is with him throughout all this. Now, ultimately, Saul fails. And we already know that. But that doesn't mean that God didn't love him. And it doesn't mean that God wasn't faithful to him. And what do we take from all of this? What can we learn from this? 3,000-year-old story. I think the first thing that we learn is that God can redeem anything. Like, if God can take Judges 19 through 21, if God can redeem that, God can redeem anything. All of us in this room have families of origin, like Saul. All of us have parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, great-grandparents, whose decisions in life in some ways have affected who we've become. We, we carry around an identity that's in part formed by our families of origin. And, and whether that is, is abuse or neglect or, or anger or, or, or pride or uh, materialism or religious, uh, you know, Phariseeism, like whatever that is, if we were to dive into one of those families of origin, we would discover is that we have been largely shaped by our families. And we're carrying around this baggage. We're carrying around all this stuff that's, that's messing with our identities. And yet God can redeem that. God can, can redeem all of us, including our family identities, including our families of, of origin. Saul fails, but Jesus doesn't. Saul didn't do it, but Jesus did. And the Son of God comes, and he lives that righteous and perfect life for us, to give that life for us, to erase our sin and take our shame and our guilt, and that includes the stuff that comes from our families. 
Do you understand that at the cross, redemption is had? And, and I think that there might be some of you who are here this morning, and, and you would look at, at, at the stuff that you have from your family. And whether that is an alcoholic father, uh, uh, anxiety-ridden, depressed mother, a racist grandfather, an abusive grandmother, whatever that is, like you're carrying around that stuff with you. And you might have this, this idea in your head, like this is who you are. You are what you are, and you can't change it. You're just doomed to continue to walk in the paths of your family of origin and to continue to do what they have done. You need to understand the hope that's found in Jesus. You need to see that at the cross of Jesus, he can take that guilt away. He can take that shame away. That he can make an exchange with you and that you can get a new family with a new heavenly father and a new big brother who has done everything to save you. You can have a new family in Jesus. And some of you are here this morning, and you know what? You're trying to overcome your family baggage yourself. And you're trying to say, you know what? I'm not gonna be an alcoholic like my father. I'm not gonna be depressed like my mother. I'm not gonna be a racist like my grandfather. I'm not gonna be abusive like my great-grandmother. And I'm gonna do it myself. And I'm gonna overcome. You know what the result is for you? You're just going to be prideful. You might be very successful, but you're just going to be full of pride. And that just means that your kids wear different shackles than you wear. But there is one. There is one way to be free. And it's in Jesus. I go back to what Saul said, I'm sorry, Samuel said at the closing. Chapter 12, verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. You know, the truth is, is you can't fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. You can't do it. So Jesus has done it for you. And because Jesus has done the work for you, you get to reap the reward and you get to see the great things that God can do for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are powerful to undo and redeem what you have redeemed, to take the brokenness, to take the disgusting of humanity and to bring it to a place where you are glorified because of it and that good comes out of it. You can redeem anything and that is a demonstration of just how powerful you are. And the truth is there is nobody in this room who has a story, who has a family of origin that is unredeemable if not given to you. So, Father, I pray this morning that if, if there's anyone here who is needing to fee- find that redemption, who has been lost and hopeless, stuck with the baggage that was been handed them, that this morning they would see a way of hope. And for anyone here this morning who has been trying to do it on their own, 
who's trying to erase their own family history by their own goodness or by their own strength. I pray that you would show them a better way. Not the way of pride, but the way of embracing you and your son. We pray all this in the name of him, Jesus. Amen.